We are in Matthew 13, Matthew 13, and we are diving into another section of uh, Matthew. As we've mentioned before, Matthew, the book of Matthew, is not chronologically written as you might find with uh, Mark and with Luke. And John is a little bit different in that it's more of a, a memoir of, of the disciple John telling you about his best friend. Uh, and John was written much later than um, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Matthew breaks it up really by using five different discourses of Jesus. And so the first four chapters of Matthew are an introduction, who Jesus is and, and why he was here and how he came to be uh, through Mary and Joseph and how the angels. And then it, uh, chapter four leads you up to Jesus starting to select the disciples. And then chapters five, six, and seven are the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when we went through that, we called it kingdom living. How do you live in the kingdom of God? How do you represent the kingdom of God? And you have a couple more chapters, and you get to chapter 10, and that would be the second discourse, or the second message of Jesus, as he's explaining to his disciples, now go out on mission, if you will. There is a mission to be accomplished for the kingdom of God. And then we went through chapters 11 and 12 explaining that. And now we're in chapter 13, and this begins what are known as parables. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, we're going to spend the next two weeks in it, but we start to get to the third discourse of Jesus. The fourth one is Matthew 18 and 19, and the fifth one would be Matthew 24 and 25, as we will get to those in the coming years. But we will, um, we begin Matthew 13, we're going to start to see uh, parables come into play. And so we're going to be talking a little bit more in depth about what parables are and why Jesus is using them. And it's very easy to understand because at one point his disciples say, why are you using parable? And he explains it. But I want to go back two weeks ago as we were finishing Matthew chapter 12, the last few verses. And we pointed out that what we see is Jesus and he, or Matthew, and he groups people as he's talking through the book of Matthew. And I kind of compared it to if you've ever gotten uh, a car, um, whatever car you, that you choose. I said new car, and I realized if you're like me, you've never really actually owned a new car. But you've got a car, and say for me it was a Subaru, and I don't remember seeing that many Subarus on the road until I owned one. And then you just saw them all over the place. It seemed like everybody had a Subaru. And they're like, oh, you know who else has a Subaru? Yeah, that other family. Well, I want to point out these three ways that you see how Matthew groups together people so that as you're reading through the book of Matthew, you, it'll stand out to you. It'll pop out to you. We talked about this two weeks ago. The first group are the disciples. And when he refers to the disciples, it isn't just the 12 disciples. It is a disciple of Jesus is somebody who hears what Jesus is saying and he responds to it. He, he starts to allow it to infiltrate his heart and his mind through the Holy Spirit and things start to change as he pursues holiness, as he pursues Christ-likeness. And here in the Bible, we see Jesus, as he's speaking, there are people who respond to it and do what he says, and those are considered the disciples of Jesus. And when we talk about modern-day discipleship, it is the same. We go to God's Word, we see what it is that God wants us to do differently as we pursue holiness, as we pursue Christ-likeness, and if we're a disciple of Christ, there will be changes that start to take place as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. The second group that he talks about are the crowds. And the crowds are the people that show up. Jesus is speaking, they show up. They hear what he's saying, 
but there isn't this pattern change in their life. They're showing up a lot of times because they want to see what is Jesus going to do this time? What is he going to heal? Uh, they show up because there's something in it for them. But there isn't a change in living. There isn't something that changes drastically. They go back to their home and they wait till they hear about the next gathering and they'll show up at that. And then the third group that Matthew points out are the religious leaders. This would be the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the people who have really dedicated their lives to studying the law. The law being the Old Testament or, and the prophets, everything that we would now consider the Old Testament. They have dedicated their lives, usually from a young age, in knowing it. And they have written other books to help understand it. And they've written other laws, and they are uh, modern-day lawyers. And what they have, the amount of time and energy and effort that they have spent their lives, they would usually have what we, again, consider the Old Testament to, uh, committed to memory. They would have memorized the entire thing. The problem was they knew God, they knew about God more than anybody else, but when the Messiah was standing in front of them, they failed to see the Messiah for who he was. They failed to see Jesus for who he was, and they thought they were smarter than him. And so they were always trying to catch him into questions. They were always trying to catch him and prove that they were, in fact, smarter to the people. But you will find, and I found in my life, I'm not going to speak for you, every time I think I'm smarter than Jesus, and I would never allow those words to come out of my mouth, but in my actions I demonstrate that I'm smarter than Jesus. Every time I sin, every time I mess up, every time I willingly choose to disobey him, I think it's because I'm smarter than him or there's a loophole where it doesn't concern me. And in doing so, I then think I'm just smarter than Jesus. We talked about examining our lives and our actions, not the words that come out of our mouth, but our actions to decide what category do we find ourselves fitting in. Are we disciples? Are we committed disciples to Jesus? Or are we just part of the crowd that shows up when it's convenient, but maybe something else better will come along and we're holding out for that? Or do we think in our actions that we are smarter than Jesus and that when we are told that when we can have eternal life, that we can have a hope and a joy and a forgiveness, when we allow him to be the forgiver of our sins and the, and the leader of our life and we confess our sins to him and ask for forgiveness and we are told that all the old creation dies and we become a new creation in him, and even though he's told us that and we've heard it repeatedly, we just don't listen because we think there's a loophole for us because we think in our actions we're smarter than Jesus. And so we are going to see this continue as Jesus addresses a gathering um, in this passage starting in chapter 13 that would have included all these groupings of people. And we'll see it early on, and they think that there was actually this cove in the Sea of Galilee that Jesus goes to. It says he leaves the house that we just read about at the end of chapter 12, and he goes out, and it says he starts, he sits down, and at this time, the teacher would sit down to teach, uh, which isn't a bad idea if I sit down, everybody else stands up now that I think of it. The teacher goes to teach, and he moves to a boat, and there's actually a cove in the Sea of Galilee that has always been known as the Cove of Parables. It's been passed down, and even now, historians have gone there, and you can stand on a boat and speak, and the acoustics are perfect to go up into the hills. And so as we read this, I want you to visually picture going. You hear that Jesus is teaching, and so you go. And you look over the Sea of Galilee as this man is sitting on a fisherman's boat teaching and saying these words. So as we jump into chapter 13, I want you to also understand the depth of the parables that Jesus uses. And we'll be going over these parables all summer long. 
And as we go through these parables, there is always so much depth to them uh, that Jesus doesn't say anything on accident or, or slip up as it is recorded. But we're going to be looking over uh, the overarching themes as we go through these parables. And I'm excited for you because you are basically getting a different guest speaker every week for the next three months. Um, and so as you go through these, I'm excited to, to listen to them as well uh, as we hear what are these parables? How is Jesus communicating them? But this first one that Matthew records in chapter 13 is really a parable to explain parables. Uh, he is using a parable to explain to his disciples the purpose of a parable as well as the meaning of the parable. So uh, there's three things I want to look at this evening. I want to see uh, three things that Jesus is communicating that I want you to take away tonight. The first thing that Jesus is communicating is how we are supposed to sow the seeds of the gospel. I totally skipped over reading the passage. Let's jump back <laughs> to chapter 13, verse 1. I was, got on a roll, just was ready to go. Chapter 13, starting in verse 1, we're going to read 17 verses. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, because they had no root." Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Three things that Jesus is communicating. One, how we are supposed to sow the seeds of the gospel. We're going to come back to that. Number two, he wants the disciples and you and I to understand that some people will accept and others reject the gospel. That ultimately it is not up to you or I. And number three, he's explaining in this passage what we'll look at tonight because we're going to go more in depth of the, the meaning of the parable itself next week. But he wants to explain the purpose of the parables to his disciples. And the way that he kind of explains it 
is when I was younger, there were these things called shopping malls. And you didn't order anything from them online because online wasn't available. And you would go to these shopping malls and they would have kiosks set up in the middle. I'm just kidding. Of course, there's still shopping malls. I one time knew a guy that still goes to them. But you go to these shopping malls and there's kiosks and they're selling all sorts of stuff. And in the 90s, you would go through and there was this thing called, I think they were called like magic pictures or magic whatever. And you would stare at this picture frame and it was just a bunch of colored dots. And you would stare at them and then I would be with my friends in the mall because this is also when you, would go, you didn't have cell phones so you actually had to like be with people to communicate with them. So you'd go and you would stare at these dots and all my friends would go, oh, there it is. It's a boat. And I would go, I don't see it. Oh, and that one's a mountain range. I don't see that one. And I used this several years ago when you were first starting as an illustration and somebody Googled it and it turns out I am of the um, smaller population that can't see those things. I legitimately cannot see. So we'd be there and everyone would say, oh, wow, that's this. And I'm like, ah, it's a bunch of dots. And then they try to sell me. I was like, why would I want something, one, at 17 years old that I can't even see? So in a way, this is kind of how the parables are working. Jesus is presenting this story. He's presenting these parables to the people, but not everyone's getting it. And as he's presenting these parables, there's aha moments for some, and for others, it's, well, that was weird. I was kind of hoping to see somebody get healed, and they didn't. One author wrote, The parable is a way of communicating truth through a narrative analogy in the service of moral or spiritual argument. The first question we want to ask tonight is, why parables? Why is Jesus using parables? As you go through these next couple chapters this summer, why is Jesus using parables? parables. And I want you to go back to chapter 13 and look at verse 9. As Jesus is finishing the parable, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Then the disciples come up to him, and I love the disciples, because I think they represent me very well, and they're like, wow, that was really good, Jesus. Uh, One quick thing, what does that mean? (laughs) Because I don't know. So you drop down to verse 13, and Jesus explains, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Jesus is using parable because the, parables because the true disciples of Jesus will be able to hear and to see what he is saying. And whether they immediately get it and they obey, or whether, like the disciples here, they hear it, it kind of makes sense, but they're not sure exactly, and so they seek out Jesus and, because they want to know, what does this actually mean? Tell us what this actually means. And in so doing, there is a response 
caused by the Holy Spirit, caused by them to, when they hear the Word of God in their life, when they hear the words of Jesus being poured out, there is a response to action. Whether it is to obedience and to do what has been said, or to go and ask further questions, to go and have a discussion about what was said, there is a response by the disciples of Jesus to go and learn more, or to go and do. Which is a demonstration of the parable itself, that the seed has landed on good soil, that it is taking root, but it still needs the water, it still needs the nutrition, and it will continue to go back to the source of living water over and over again, to continue to grow up, to be able to have the roots go deeper into the earth. So the hard question for us to ask ourselves after reading the passage, after reading what Jesus explains the parable by using a passage from uh, Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we receptive or are we hard-hearted towards the gospel? Are you receptive or hard-hearted towards the gospel? And again, next week we'll explain the parable itself, but Jesus is wanting them to understand that people will be able to sit there and hear. They will be able to lay eyes on Jesus, and they're still not going to believe. Their hearts are calloused to it. Satan has allowed something to put blinders on them to callous their hearts, that they're not sensitive to it, that they're so selfish in their core of who they are, that they are unwilling to think that they need help, that they are unable to see how desperately their sins have separated from them from God, and they need an answer to them. That their ears don't, their ears don't hear and their eyes don't see, and he says, blessed are you because you do. That there was a response to the parable in and of itself that you were picking up on something that needed to change or ask further questions or have a discussion on. So are you receptive or hard-hearted towards the gospel? Dallas Willard wrote, the ultimately lost person is the person who cannot want God, who cannot want God to be God. Multitudes of such people pass by every day and pass into eternity. The reason they do not find God is that they do not want Him, or, at least, do not want Him to be God. Wanting God to be God is very different from wanting God to help me. There was people that showed up on the banks of the Galilee, and they wanted God to heal them, but on their terms. They wanted God to make their life easier, but they didn't want any form of commitment going back the other way. They wanted the Messiah to be a political ruler. They wanted the Messiah to be a general of a great army. They wanted to dictate to God the God that they wanted, kind of like a -a Build-A-Bear. It was a -a Build-A-God. They wanted it the way they wanted it, and they wanted to design it so that they didn't have to change much about their life, if anything at all. But that one little thing, the problem, then I can have God for that. So when we ask ourselves, are we hard-hearted towards the gospel, it's not just a question for those who have never turned their life, who have never made Jesus the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life. It is a question for us who say that we believe in the gospel, but is the gospel penetrating every part of our life, or are there things that we are holding out for a better option? 
Are there things that we have made a loophole for ourselves because uh, it just doesn't fit with my lifestyle and what I want to do? And in so doing, we are demonstrating a calloused heart and that we are hard-hearted towards the gospel. Do you find yourself wishing God would just fit into what you want? Or are you standing in awe of a holy, all-powerful God, amazed and humbled by his infinite and intimate love for you? You understand, in Ephesians 3, it talks about how wide and deep and overpowering the love of God is. And I heard, I think it was Neil McGlowan one time was preaching, and he said that even if you were the only person on earth, God still would have sent his son to be tortured and murdered for you. That's how intimately God loves each and every single one of his creation. And do you stand in awe of that? Are you amazed by that? Are you absolutely brought to your knees in humility, understanding how much God loves you? Or do you just wish God would fit into the box you've created for him to exist in? One of the bigger pictures of this parable as well is talking about sowing the seeds of the gospel. There's also a response involved in this as well. But as we see this farmer, and at the time as Jesus is talking to the people, especially in this northern region of uh, modern-day Israel in the area of Galilee, almost everybody would have had their own crops. Almost everybody would have had a form of farm, if not a massive, what we would call farm. And so he's using, uh, he's using terminology that's easy for people to understand. And so they know that the farmer, if you will, would go out and you'd have more than likely a large sack of seed and he is just throwing it as he's walking through the field. He's not walking around carefully, checking the soil, making sure it goes in the right spot, making sure there's no rocks underneath. He's going through after plowing and he's just throwing the seed. And where it lands, hopefully some of it lands in good spots. Hopefully some of it lands in good spots soil. And so, as I said, there's many layers to these parables. It's easy to start talking about the soil and becoming soil experts, and rightfully so, as we examine our own lives and examine our own soil of our life, but also comes with it the responsibility of us if we have understood or are beginning to understand, if we are in awe of the infinite and intimate love of God that He displays to us every single day through forgiving us, through giving us a hope and joy and love that we just cannot understand and a peace and a comfort through trying times. As we start to understand that, the question becomes, how are we now taking responsibility to continue to sow the seeds of the gospel with every man, woman, and child wherever we live, learn, work, and play? How do we now, after understanding how much God loves us, cannot bear to think about the people that exist in our community not knowing Him? The people that we work with not knowing Him. The people that we are related to not knowing Him. So how are we taking responsibility to sow the seeds of the gospel? Now, I also want you to understand what Jesus is communicating in this parable is it's not up to you. Your job is to throw the seed. 
It is the God through the Holy Spirit that will convict and change and remove the blinders and remove the callous of the heart to draw people to himself. But it is our responsibility to at least be demonstrating and telling people about this all-loving God. Uh, Romans 10, 14 and 15. I don't know if it's up on the screen or not. It is. Paul writes, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The word gospel is translated as good news. It is the good news that Jesus defeated sin and death, that you no longer have to pay the the penalty for your sins, but rather Jesus has taken it on himself. When he died, he brought it to the grave. When he rose again, he left your sins buried in death in the grave and demonstrated that he is more powerful than sin. He is more powerful than death. He is what we can put our hope in. And as he has demonstrated, that is the good news. So how are you being that person that's preaching the good news to other people in your life? We have two what we call strategies to help in this. Um, these are not magical, these are not some form of, I don't even know, send this socket in and we'll get $10 back, something like that. This is just strategies that we use to help you think through and to be specific in how we are reaching the people in our lives. The first one is quite simple, and they're on the back table that you can grab. And it is just our invite card. We do not think that there is anything more special about Hope Church than any other church. But this is just one to invite people to Hope Church. So see you Saturday at 6 p.m. And it has our address and our website. Very, very simple, very easy to hand to somebody. The other thing that we are going to start handing out, uh, Sarah and Robert um, and Jose, uh, if you don't mind, uh, Jose Gomez, sorry, I have to be very specific on that. Uh, if you just, and they're going to come through, and they're handing out what we call our pi squared cards. And the front, it just says, pray, invest, invite. And on the back, there is a spot for five names. Uh, and out of those five names, and if you can't think of five people, it gives like a hint. Maybe you don't know five people. That's fine. Write in three. But all this is is for you to, every day, to pray for them. Pray for them specifically. Uh, for a long time, I would put this on the dashboard of my car so I could remember to pray for them as I was driving, and then I realized I'm frequenting the places that are owned by some of the people on this, and I don't want them to, hey, why is my name written down on your dashboard? Just out of curiosity. Uh, but to carry this with you in your pocket every time you remember to pray for these five names, or, but to pray, to ask the Lord to give you opportunities to to allow them. The second part is what comes next, and that is to invest in them. Um, how are you praying for them, but are you praying for opportunities to serve them, to invest in their lives, to help them with their child, to rake their lawn, to mow their, whatever it is? How are you investing in their lives to demonstrate in action that you love them and that you care for them? And then thirdly is to invite. The number one thing we want you to invite them to is a relationship with Jesus Christ. To invite them into knowing what it is to have this forgiveness and this joy and this hope that is Jesus. This love. 
As Pete said last week, that's how God describes himself in 1 John, is God is love. Uh, the example I always use whenever we go over this is the um, Apostle Andrew. Not much is said about Andrew, but every time he shows up in Scripture, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. He's inviting them to know Jesus, including his brother Peter, including the Greeks in Acts that are trying to figure out what's going on. Every time Andrew shows up, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. So how are you inviting these people to know Jesus? How are you, are you inviting them out for coffee? Are you inviting them, uh, invite them to church? And um, sometimes, and this may sound weird, Saturday night services don't work for everyone, but there's these other churches that meet on Sunday mornings I've heard of. But how do you, do you know the churches in your area to help people get involved in a local body of believers? Uh, what are you inviting them to? Number one, to know Jesus, but are you inviting them to community group, inviting them over to your house for dinner? And so this is just a strategy. It is just a reminder to help us think through uh, how are we reaching people for Jesus? How are we taking the seeds of the gospel that have taken root in our lives and allowing other people to see that for them in their lives as well? Warren Wearsby a long-time pastor, author, he said this, you're a Christian because somebody cared. Now it's your turn. However it is, and I don't know everybody in here, I don't know your story. I don't know if you have accepted Christ as your Savior. But I can guarantee you that someone, somewhere, was praying for you. Someone cared enough to go before God regularly and prayed for you to come to know Him that you might know him as they know him. Maybe it was more than that. Maybe somebody continued to build a relationship with you. Somebody continued to invest in your life. Somebody continued to invite you for coffee, invite you over for a meal, continually demonstrated that they loved you. They wanted you to know a God that they knew, and they couldn't imagine living a life not knowing him. Somebody cared about you. Now it's your turn to care for them. Now it's your turn to spread that seed of the gospel in their life as well. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come to you, to go to your word. That your word does not return void. That we are able to through the Holy Spirit, know what needs to change in our life. And so, Lord, I pray for the people that are here this evening that do know you, that do have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would convict us in the way that you would open up our eyes to see, one, the areas of our lives that we need to be convicted of and continue to repent from and seek after you, but also, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the people around us who need you. Lord, that our prayer life would be changed as we understand how important it is that the people around us know you as well. But Lord, I also pray for those that are here this evening that do not know you. Uh, maybe they've heard the good news of your word over and over and over again, but their hearts are hardened and their eyes don't see, their ears don't hear. Lord, I pray that you would be working in their life right now. And Lord, I pray for those that maybe this is the first time that they have heard the good news about what you did. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to come up and ask questions, 
where we saw the disciples who were a little confused, but they were courageous enough to go up and ask Jesus questions. Lord, I pray that you would give those that have questions courage to come and to ask, that they may know you, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.